I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by Joan Silber. She's the author of nine books of fiction. Her last book, Improvement, was the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Penn Faulkner Award. Her previous book, Fools, was longlisted for the National Book Award and was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. She lives in New York, has taught at Sarah Lawrence College, and teaches in the Warren Wilson MFA program. And her latest is Secrets of Happiness. Welcome, Joan. Thank you. Happy to be here. I, I get so much pleasure out of uh, both from Secrets of Happiness and um, Improvement. They're structured so similarly. And I, I love um, reading and trying to anticipate what character will possibly narrate the next section. <laughs> Tell me about the structure and how that works. Um, well, the main thing is I make it up as I go along. <laughs> it's not really planned in advance. So I usually have the beginning idea. In this case, it was the father who, who the family discovers has had this secret family on the side, a, a, a woman from Thailand and two sons. And then um, I think, oh, what do I want to do next? You know, where can I go with this that, that, that will take it further? And in this case, I knew that I wanted to follow the Thai American family as, as much as I could. Um, so I did that and then they had other characters who I pulled out of it. I love doing that. I like the way it spreads the narrative and makes it just not one person's story. And, and how do you keep the voices distinct but make the tone consistent throughout the, they're in the same book. They're in the same book and they're coming from me. Um, I think of myself as translating the thoughts of the, the narrators, not as um, not, not exactly capturing them as they would be speaking, but I'm trying to get the emotional logic of who they are. So I, I do think that through before I go. Yeah, absolutely. There isn't much slang, say. Tell me a little bit about 
there's the Thai family, but then so many East and Southeastern Asian countries um, are a big part of this novel. Tell me about the research you did. I, I know you've traveled a little bit, your publisher says. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, well, it was very, I started traveling in Asia um, about 20 years ago, and I, I love it. It's been important to me. Um, the, I do, I mean, I have, the, I have my own responses from having actually been there, and then I do a lot of reading. Um, the one place I had not been in this novel is Nepal, because I had planned to go there this fall, <laughs> or mm. last fall. Oh, last gosh, fall. yeah. <laughs> so clearly I didn't get there. So, but there's a lot written about, so for instance, even in the Thailand sections, I've been to Thailand many times, but I have never been in the police station. Right, um, right. But I have a character go into one. Um, I hope it's right. But many foreigners who have had that experience have written about it. So uh, I'm using that material and making it as faithful to my characters as I can. So it's less important. I mean, I want to get it right, but it's most important that I get the characters' responses right. So, so I'm honing in on that part of it. And there is, I mean, most of your characters are tourists. In Yes, yes. I don't pretend I'm a native. Right. And, and the idea of being a tourist in any place is that you have a distorted view of what native people are doing and thinking there. Um, I, I certainly always do an outsider coming in. I mean, mm -hmm. um, some people know more and some people are better observers. Um, when I first started traveling in Asia, great distinctions were made between tourists and travelers and travelers were people who stayed longer and knew more. And now I sort of think, ah, you know, that's not so crucial. I think um, you you want, uh, also, I'm not writing a, you know, a travel guide, so it's right. not up to me to be, you know, entirely complete about it, but you want some accuracy of observation, and you want, um, for fiction, you want some observation about what's most important to them, uh, yeah. so that's uh, a part of it, but it's certainly, I feel like after traveling all these years, I'm, I'm in, I'm not an expert on Asia by any means, but I'm an enemy of what I would call parochialism. And I think parochialism is the idea that the way you do it is the way it's done. Right. And that's very dangerous as a policy and as a, you know, a human response to things. But for characters, it's... <laughs> for characters, oh yeah, they can, they can goof all they want. They make all sorts of mistakes, right? Yes. If they didn't, yes. there would be no story, you know? Yeah. Exactly. There's also this thread, of course, throughout the book about the history of, of labor, um, textile manufacturing, and workplaces that many of your characters mention Charles Dickens. And yeah, that seems like uh, perhaps one of the first places I, I had heard about terrible conditions in workplaces. And then of course, you get to the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. And then of course, the, the um, quote unquote, th third world that, um, for instance, Gil visits quite often. Tell me about that thread. Um, well, I, I couldn't not, I mean, I live on the Lower East Side. And in fact, it used to be that every year on the anniversary of the Triangle Fire, someone did a project where they wrote the names of people who'd been killed in chalk on the sidewalks of the buildings they lived in. So it's, it's certainly in my consciousness. I certainly began it with him being in the, what he calls the rag trade, um, because that would be a convenient way to have him go to Asia. You know, I knew, I knew this story. Someone had told me a story about some, a woman who discovered her husband had a secret 
affair. Um, the story was not Thailand in the original version, but I wanted to make it that. And so the, the garment district, I mean, Thailand was one of the stops on outsourcing many years ago. Um, so uh, um, I, I knew it, it allowed me to incorporate parts of the world that were important to me. It's very, it's also very obvious that you know, we're all wearing clothes that were made under those conditions. Um, we would like, like not to, we yeah. might try not to, but that, that's part of the way we live. And I just wanted that thread um, in there. Um, the final form is actually Cambodia because I have um, Bud, who's one of my favorite characters who has this long and winding life, wind up working for an NGO in Cambodia. Um, and he works with labor organizations that help organized in factories who are not organized. And there is such a thing. So I found that I, I do all my research online for stuff like that, you know, um, but I was so happy to know that um, for one thing, the garment district is almost always women uh, doing, sure. uh, running the sewing machines. It's a standard sort of female thing to do to sew. Um, and um, that, you know, it just allowed me to go to the places I wanted to go in the story and to have, the story itself be aware, uh, you know, that we live in an unjust world, that that's, that's a background to any story. Yes. And, and I think such a, a through line to this novel is the money anxiety. And we, we know that having too much or too little is, <laughs> is what makes us miserable in most uh, instances, but yet we live in a country where the wealth gap continues to grow and um, more people live in the extremes. Yes, yes. The second chapter was originally published as a story under the title Love and Money. And, <laughs> and that was a, a possible title for the whole book. It's certainly a, a, a theme. Um, I certainly don't want, I mean, money does not buy happiness. I mean, that's definitely <laughs> yes. the, the strains of the characters about that. You know, I, I certainly didn't want to point to that as the solution, you know, for anyone. But even just, we live in a capitalist society where we need money and yet it makes everything more complicated. How, yes, tell me about exactly. writing that into a plot. Well, I wanted um, I wanted that in the plot. Certainly, a different. It affects different characters. The um, Thai mother Nook, um, uh, she ends up quite loving her her partner and takes care of him when he's ailing. But money was definitely part of their initial. Uh, she's not a hooker, but her her attraction to him was partly that he could supply such an easier life for her, um, and. Uh, I'm very aware of that as a factor in the, with the characters. And I wanted a character who turns down an inheritance that was always in my mind. So we have the character of Bud doing that uh, mm -hmm. further along in the, in the book. I just knew it was going to come up. It was going to be a factor in how things turned out with different characters. It was always, since I'm making it up as I go along, that was one of the engines uh, behind the plot, sure. the money factor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And Bud's journey is so specific because he's raised in a quote-unquote conservative family. I think there are other adjectives for, for what his family is. Um, and, and there's a paragraph that really stuck out to me that started, 
about about how his dad hated poor people and the idea of believing that poor people are at fault right. that they're not they doing their fates yeah if they were more together they wouldn't be poor yeah yeah which is i i imagine lots of people uh, think that way and and so then bud kind of um figures out his place in life and on the way he is the victim of a robbery but he's <laughs> he loses money that um he has himself stolen <laughs> but he learns that money is not the be all end all yeah i think he, he never thought that although he's certainly prone to theft and i mean there's a my favorite scene with him or one of my favorite scenes is when he's climbing on the roof to yeah. he's a great climber so he gets up on the roof of a of a restaurant and gets in the window that way and always remembers that uh happily um but certainly money money slopes in and out of his life in all sorts of ways um and um he's i think one of our wrong expectations about money is that we expect that people will be motivated by it in fact when people are are trying to sell me something over the phone they'll always say well you could save money doing it so you must want it right. um, and i think but particularly as a character is is pushing against that that he he's um uh, he, he has his own ways of, of getting it, but he doesn't want to be part of that theory. He's, he's even distanced himself from, like, I, I love that um, he tells a, a sort of white lie to his family about what he's doing for a living, and then he makes it true. That's one of my, when I thought of that, it was just one of my happy experiences writing. I didn't know I was going to do that. Yes, his family accuses him of working for the union or a union. And, and then, and his, his friend is actually has a union job. Right. So he makes himself up as his friend. And then he goes, he has his friend get him a job eventually. I love that. Because I think it's often true that when you tell a lie, you end up actually doing it or you end up believing it, you know, it becomes true in some sort of way. But it supplied me with a good plot direction. So I was very happy. Yes. And, and then there are other, um, there are so many d different complicated things with money. Joe Gill's son mm -hmm. with Nook um has has a lot of complicated things going on he as you mentioned has to go to thailand to bail his brother or not bail what's the right word his bribe brother. bribe his bribe brother. His yeah. brother. <laughs> um and in the meantime he's he he gives this very loaded loan to right. an ex-girlfriend yes a friend just wrote that that was a really um painful scene for him to read yeah. that, that um, when Joe, Joe sort of calls in his debts and has an ex-girlfriend come over and um, sleep with him again when she clearly doesn't want to, but feels obliged to. Um, it, it, it's kind of complicated and, and it's, it's not savage on his part, but it's clearly wrong and he knows what he's doing. Um, so that, so I think everyone's idea of debts and collecting on debts is often um, complicated like that. Um, and, and not the best side of their character. Yeah, and and Joe's mother, of course, also has a, a really kind of transactional view. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of money, and it's uh, it's hard to argue with that if the character is poor and um. Another big thread, of course, because it's the title of the book is happiness 
And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you wanted to make that the focus of the book and how. Well, I thought of that as the title when I'd finished the first chapter, which I thought might just be a story. Um, because for one thing, I mean, secrets are clearly, you know, oh, he has this family we didn't know about for, you know, two decades. Um, and um, then I felt that the mother who does go through real changes after she's made this discovery and spends time teaching in Thailand and has a whole sort of history on her own, that she, at the end of the, that chapter, she's saying, um, tell your sister not to worry when the daughter is getting worried about money or whatever. Um, and I, and I, so I thought, oh, she's found the secret to happiness, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, through uh, another perspective. Um, so um, I thought I wanted both of those things in the title, the emphasis on secrets and the emphasis on um, sometimes circuitous ways people do find happiness. My favorite section in the book is when Bud is in Cambodia and is thinking that, um, you know, he, he's actually, He's looking out at the at the Mekong and 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 thinking that he he has a loved girlfriend back at home who's sending him fond messages and he's and he thinks that he would tell his um, right wing father who's long since gone um, I couldn't ask for more than I have and that I you know I wanted that that notion in the in the book and and I think you also do that in the first and last chapters the only one that's narrated by the same character. Ethan finds himself in this, I don't even know if I could call it a love triangle. <laughs> it's like an invented family. An it invented is a part family of is a way better way to put it. And the unexpected happiness that, that he finds in that is, is really striking. Tell me a little bit about um, just the, well, Saul's an interesting character um, on his own in that he's stubborn and he is unyielding. And yet he also can kind of dictate what the terms are or how he will die, basically. Yes. Um, uh- for those who haven't read the book, I mean, Saul is a, um, he's 57, he's a librarian, he's gay, his partner has decided to leave him, even though Saul is actually dying of um, leukemia. So, and his sister is narrating the story, his sister is horrified, like, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna throw out of your apartment this man who has a, you know, a mortal disease. And uh, as this, and then it turns out that the boyfriend who's throwing him out is actually having, has begun a romance with Ethan, who's the narrator of the, of the book, uh, or of the two, the two parts of the book. Um, but I, I, again, I didn't know what, how that was going to progress. And um, in fact, in the course of Saul's moving out, he only moves further in the building and he's still involved with Kirk and Ethan. Get, and they all end up taking care of Kirk along with the sister and the sister's sort of unofficially adopted daughter. Um, so, um, and, and that became a more benign image than I, than I even knew it was going to with all of them watching over him. And, and, and Saul really likes it. He likes all this attention and, and 
living on and tells his funny stories over and over again to them and stuff. Um, and some of it probably came out of um, many years ago, I was what was called a buddy for gay men's health crisis. So I helped out with men, men who had AIDS uh, and, and a woman with AIDS too for many years. But in the early years um, when the people I work with were men, I, I would sometimes see that. I mean, old boyfriends who had done someone wrong many years ago would come back and visit and be kind to the person who was ill. Um, for for um, all sorts of reasons, there was a sense of solidarity. You know, it could be me and now it's you. But it was also, it was quite, it was, you know, an unprecedented moment and, and quite touching scenes went on in that. So I think some memories of that fit into the scenes of all of them um, watching over Saul. And, and of course, even um, Saul's um, contemporaries are, are have to be reminded of that, even if he is dying of leukemia. Yeah, even, and, and it's, it's after the worst stages of that, but of course it's not, you know, AIDS is not gone. You're still traumatized. Um, talk to me about Buddhism and how the ideas in Buddhism fit into this narrative. Oh, thank you for asking that. I'm great. I wanted, you know, I want, those ideas have been so important to me. I wanted them to be in the book, but not to, you know, be heavy handed in the way that they were handled. Um, I became interested in Buddhism probably 25 years ago, at least something like that, and made my own way through it. Since it's not the religion I was born into, I'm Jewish, um, I had to make my own uses of it and adaptations uh, of it. Um, I, I'm not a big meditator, and for many American Buddhists, that's the most important part. For me, the ideas were the most important, particularly the ones about impermanence, you know, don't worry, it won't last, nothing does. Um, and and also the idea of um, get over yourself. Um, so those, those are, I'm trying to, you know, get those into, I mean, certainly, particularly Saul, who is in, you know, who's, who's dying, who's in crisis. And then his, his um, sort of unofficial niece, Nadia, um, is the one who in her own, you know, Form kind of comes in with those ideas and tries to kind of chant for him and so forth. Anyway, I wanted those in the book and I think they're important to the book. And that section was originally published under the title Freedom from Want, which yeah. is sort of a, I mean, it's FDR's phrase as one of the four freedoms, but it's also, I want, you know, the idea of how you control your wants and what you do with them is, is central to the ideas of, of the book. Um, and I would say greed is the sin of people like Gill and like um, eventually Kirk in, in, you know, wanting more than, in fact, wanting more than they could hold on to actually and wanting more that is good for them. So all of that sort of percolates through the, through the book. And even uh, of course, when Bud is the victim of a robbery, um, <laughs> the, the lesson he takes from it feels very Buddhist and practical. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. Is there an example of Buddhism in literature that um, has spoken to you? And it's okay. That's really interesting because I, I think it's, it's hard for um, writers to, to do that. And I cannot, I have to think about that, but I cannot think of anything off the top of my head that actually embodies that. And that is <laughs> more than fair. Tell me about other books you might like to recommend. Oh, my favorite books this year um, are, they're actually books by friends, but I would like them even if I didn't know the people. Um, Margaret, Margot 
Livesey's um, The Boy in the Field, which I just thought was stunning. It's the most transporting book. When, when you're in it, you, you don't want anything else bothering you. It's just, um, and it actually is about a, a wounded boy is found in the field by a bunch of kids. So it's about an evil deed that's happened, but the book unfolds with all sorts of sort of graciousness around that deed. So it's just, just a beautiful book. Um, and then I loved um, Charles Baxter's um, the, I always get the title wrong, The Sun Collective. Um, and, and that's, in some ways, it's about homeless people. It's about um, various magical elements that he weaves into the story. It's about um, get, growing older. It has all sorts of elements in it that are just wonderful. It's very idea-driven in a, in a kind of fascinating way, I think. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. I've loved this interview. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.